Thank you for waiting. Uh, welcome to the new F.A. Hayek Auditorium at the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Gene Healy. I'm a vice president at Cato. And today we are going to have what promises to be a very interesting discussion of uh, a new book, Knowledge and Coordination, a Liberal Interpretation by uh, Professor Dan Klein. Uh, Tyler Cowen calls it the best book on Smithian economics, or for that matter, Austrian economics, in many years. We're going to begin with some uh, remarks for, from Dan. Uh, Dan is a professor of economics at George Mason University, where he leads a program in Adam Smith. Uh, his books include Curb Rights, a Foundation for Free Enterprise and Urban Transit, co-authored with Adrian T. Moore and Binyam Reha, uh, What Do Economists Contribute? Um, question people have been asking more and more in recent years. Uh, and uh, uh, The Half-Life of Policy Rationales, co-edited with Fred E. Foldvary. Uh, Dan holds degrees from George Mason University and New York University, where in both cases he studied the classical liberal traditions of economics. Um, as for today's talk, uh, Dan's book treats a range of topics, and his presentation is not a synopsis. It's more of a riff on certain themes of the book that he thought would be especially fitting for the Cato Institute. And the title of the talk is The Improprieties of the Pretense of Knowledge. Dan? Uh, well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm very grateful to Jason Kuznicki and Gene Healy and the Cato Institute for this opportunity to speak and all of you for coming out. I've prepared these remarks. Uh, I think it's going to take us about 30 minutes uh, talking about this topic here. Today we see a lively interest in plumbing the depths of knowledge. Daniel Kahneman talks about thinking fast and slow and Jonathan Haidt distinguishes minds awake and asleep. Today, I consider our knowledge in relation to the tasks to which we use that knowledge. Our knowledge is rich and deep and multifaceted, but is it up to the task? By admitting the complexities of the things to be known and by appreciating the richness of knowledge per se, we better assess the adequacy of the knowledge we actually have. A candid understanding of knowledge makes us more virtuous and more libertarian. Hayek spoke of the pretense of knowledge and the fatal conceit, and Smith denounced the folly and presumption of interventionists. Indeed, I think that the new candidness, and I think there is sort of a new candidness, <clears throat> about knowledge may illuminate the errors of governmentalizing social affairs. The theme is certainly alive among classical liberals today, for example, Jeffrey Friedman writes about the depths of public ignorance. Mark Pennington explains the epistemic failings of governmentalization. Roger Koppel speaks of epistemic monopoly in governmentalized affairs. And Brian Kaplan and Paul Rubin tell of systematic biases in the public's thinking. One of the funny things about knowledge is that as we plumb its depths, we never seem to get to a bottom. There always seems to be more plumbing to do. Students of Smith, Hayek, and Polanyi, however, have gotten used to that. They, those authors, taught us that behind any articulation of an interpretation of things or of a means-ends framework we supposedly pursue is a well of tacit knowledge from which the articulation emerged. And it emerges not as a representation complete and faithful to what we know, imagine an articulation of how to ride a bicycle, but merely an articulation we managed to spit out under the circumstances. Indeed, we expect our interpretations to evolve. As soon as we get an interpretation into words, we learn to tinker with it. Polanyi noted the, quote, peculiar opportunity offered by explicit knowledge for reflecting on it critically, end quote. With email, Facebook, and iPhones, we lose no time. As soon as a blogger sets out an interpretation, the comments field piles up criticisms and variations. Even our best interpretations 
maybe self-retiring. In the theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith discussed the dialectics of our notions of propriety. Propriety in Smith is the benchmark separating what is praiseworthy from what is blameworthy. Each community I, as it were, develops its understandings of propriety, and that's something to be known, or you hope to be known. In that way, men interpret the conduct and character first of their neighbors and afterwards of themselves, to echo the full title of Smith's work. In affairs between equals, between you and your neighbor, Smith affirmed an invisible hand in the evolution of our interpretations. He wrote, this is the equal-equal relationship, frankness and openness conciliate confidence. We trust the man who seems willing to trust us. We see clearly we think the road by which he means to conduct us, and we abandon ourselves with pleasure to his guidance and direction. He goes on, the great pleasure of conversation and society besides arises from a certain correspondence of sentiments and opinions, from a certain harmony of minds which, like so many musical instruments, coincide and keep time with one another. But this most delightful harmony cannot be obtained unless there is free communication of sentiments and opinions. Sometimes, however, not there yet, sorry. Sometimes, however, the, the circumstances do not conduce to free communication and openness. The circumstances may, in fact, impel us to leave out some of what we know or even misrepresent it. This is especially likely when dealing with people who wield great power over us, are not terribly reasonable, and are not accountable for how they deal with us in return. Perhaps here in Washington, D.C., you can imagine some such circumstances. Smith's optimism about the equal-equal relationship was coupled with a pessimism about the superior-inferior relationship. About those, he said, and I can only give a sample, in the courts of the princes, in the drawing rooms of the great, where success and preferment depend not upon the esteem of intelligent and well-informed equals, but upon the fanciful and foolish favor of ignorant, presumptuous, and proud superiors, flattery and falsehood too often prevail. In assessing the invisible hand in morals and culture then, Smith said that in equal-equal relationships, it has the upper hand, but not in superior-inferior relationships. Smith's drift is that this is a good reason to oppose the governmentalization of social affairs. He wanted as much as possible the equal-equal relationship, not the superior-inferior relationship, not only because it makes us wealthier and healthier, but because it makes our lives more becoming. Good culture is one of the good consequences of natural liberty. Culture is the knowledge we practice. It is characterized especially in the interpretation and judgment facets of knowledge. Knowledge entails three facets, information, interpretation, and judgment. A story may help illuminate these facets. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson go on a camping trip. After a good dinner and a bottle of wine, they retire for the night and go to sleep. Some hours later, Holmes wakes and nudges his faithful friend. Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. I see millions and millions of stars, Holmes, replies Watson. And what do you deduce from that? Watson ponders for a moment. Well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and we are a small and insignificant part of the universe. What does it tell you, Holmes? Holmes is silent for a moment. Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> In this story, what matters is not a difference in information. Holmes and Watson had the same information. What differ are their interpretations. 
Watson looks up at the starry sky and gives five interpretations. Even that is not enough. As Holmes brings a sixth, someone has stolen the tent. The story is funny because of the asymmetry in interpretation. The humor lies not only in the asymmetry between Holmes and Watson. There is another asymmetry at play. When we hear of Sherlock Holmes, we expect a tale of remarkable insight in his seeing something that is not obvious. But it turns out instead to be a story of Watson's failure to see something that should have been obvious, namely that the tent was gone. We expect a story of Holmes' brilliance, and we get a story of Watson's dimness. Asymmetric interpretation seems to be essential to humor. Look at any line from Seinfeld or Abbott and Costello, and you will notice a shifting between different interpretations, very often between different benchmarks, either about how obvious an idea is or where the line of propriety lies. In his show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David loves to, to reinterpret the lines of propriety, perhaps because, like David Hume and Adam Smith, he is leery of people's enthusiasms. Malcolm Gladwell says that an interpretation takes only a blink. It does not take much to find context even for multiple interpretations. The name of the movie mogul, Samuel Golden, Goldwyn, itself comes in context. Even in his briefest utterances, we can find two standards. Consider the following. We're overpaying him, but he's worth it. Let's have some new cliches. I'll give you a definite maybe. Even as we affirm an interpretation, others lace our thoughts. In the superior-inferior relationship between my daughter and me, her familiar refrain is, yeah, right, Dad. In juggling interpretations, we had better keep a sense of humor. You will notice, however, that the government and governmentalized affairs are quite humorless. They may afford us objects of humor, but they are themselves, like machines, quite humorless. Knowledge entails information, interpretation, and judgment. The interpretations are multiple and keep coming, but we need to get on with things. Derek Jeter might be wrong in reading the pitch as a slider, but if he dithers too long, he might be called out on strikes. Life comes with time clocks, the length of which often being another matter of propriety. In acting, we judge among our portfolio of interpretations and decide which to take stock in. Judgment, that third one, is about the interpretations we act on. It is the action facet of knowledge. Judgment connects knowledge to practice. Only in practice is our knowledge tested, and the test results impel us to create new interpretations and sharpen our judgment. So knowledge evolves. And if we are wise, we expect it to evolve. This aspect of wisdom was highlighted in Ambro Bierce's famous work, The Devil's Dictionary. Here is Bierce's definition, definition of education. Education, noun, that which discloses to the wise and disguises from the foolish their lack of understanding. In other words, your fine education in particle physics surely enhances your understanding of many things, but also if you are wise, you notice some of its presuppositions, uncertainties, and mysteries, and hence ways in which you lack understanding of particle physics. You see that your interpretation is neither complete nor final, and for some problems may even be misleading. The point looms larger in social sciences and corresponds to words written by the preeminent English economist Alfred Marshall. In 1917, he wrote the following words, but the more I studied economic science, the smaller appeared the, the knowledge which I had of it in proportion to the knowledge that I needed. And now at the end of nearly half a century of almost exclusive study of it, I am conscious of more ignorance of it than I was at the beginning of the study. Here, Marshall was expressing a lingering Smithian humility. Marshall wanted to serve universal benevolence, but he felt daunted by the economy's unknowability. How are intellectuals, experts, and regulators 
to know enough to manipulate society beneficially. But you might ask, if our knowledge is so limited, how does anyone get on in life? If knowledge is so shifting and disjointed, how do private actors build their projects? If government cannot succeed, how is it that private actors can? And if private actors can succeed, why can't government? Also, how is it that the classical liberal philosopher knows whatever it is that he pretends justifies his conclusions in politics and policy? <clears throat> what about his humility? Indeed, the commentator from the Cato Institute may seem anything but humble. I see a couple of important differences. First, the private actor, compared to the benevolent regulator, moves in a much more limited space and indeed will tend to confine his movements to a space that his knowledge can handle. He is like the skater on the floor of the roller rink, careful to preserve his well-being and minding the conditions around him. The skater's actions are local and his knowledge need not be more than local. He does not need to know or understand the entire system of skating or even think about it. In the social world, the individual moves likewise into limited space, and again, only when confident that he interprets competently. Smith said, the people seek praise and praiseworthiness, and people avoid blame and blameworthiness, and not least in the marketplace. They mind the proprieties of their context. The benchmarks of proprieties develop in context and bottom up in the equal-equal relationship in private affairs, movements tend to evolve in a fashion that respects the limits of knowledge, thus Smith's optimism about affairs among equals. Smith said that the standards of propriety are loose, vague, and indeterminate, making for knowledge problems. But for the private actor, that which is to be known is much more modest than for the expert or intellectual who proposes to manipulate the great system. Regular people can negotiate their knowledge problems. Moreover, there is another important difference. Consider this from Smith. The general rules of almost all the virtues, the general rules which determine what are the offices of prudence, of charity, of generosity, of gratitude, of friendship, are in many respects loose and inaccurate admit of many exceptions and require so many modifications that it is scarce possible to regulate our conduct entirely by our regard to them. Smith associated this looseness, which he attributed to almost all the virtues, with aesthetics, thus seeing the general rules of nearly all virtues as akin to the vague rules that we invoke when we speak of what is good in movies, music, and novels, for example. But this is not the case for all the virtues. He explains, there is, however, one virtue of which the general rules determine the greatest exactness, sorry, with, with um, so there is, however, one virtue of which the general rules determine with the greatest exactness every external action which it requires. This virtue is justice. The rules of justice are accurate in the highest degree. The whole nature and circumstances of the action prescribed are all of them precisely fixed and determined. Whereas all the other virtues relate to propriety benchmarks, engendering a negative range of blame and a positive range of praise, justice, or more specifically, commutative justice, as Smith actually calls it later in the work, is not a matter of propriety, but a matter of grammar. That's Smith's analogy. It is not loose, vague, and indeterminate, but precise and accurate. It engenders only a negative range of blame. There is no praise for abiding by commutative justice. The point is illustrated in the analogy to grammar by a blank piece of paper, which contains no violations of grammar, but wins you no praise. Commutative justice, Smith says, is abstaining from what is another's or not messing with other people's stuff. All the other virtues are quite different. They are about making the becoming use of what is our own 
as well as holding particular objects in proper value or esteem. Becoming is a much subtler affair than not messing with other people's stuff. Even in the subtle affair of becoming, however, the private actor copes by keeping his movements local. But more importantly, he often needs not fret about becoming, but may simply adhere to the social grammar. His movements may be guided principally by commutative justice, which usually poses no knowledge problem at all. What constitutes commutative justice in Hume, Smith, and classical liberalism generally is property, consent, and contract. Smith takes a loan of 10 pounds, and commutative justice requires that he repay the lender as agreed. Society can get by principally by commutative justice, which Smith says is the main pillar which upholds the whole edifice, whereas the becoming virtues are the ornaments which embellish our social world. At the roller rink, spontaneous order happens before our very eyes. It works by a coincidence of interest. In promoting my interest in avoiding collision with you, I also permit, promote your interest in avoiding collision with me. In the economy at large, we also find a coincidence of interest. In promoting my interest in gaining in a voluntary exchange with you, I also promote your interest in gaining in a voluntary exchange with me. This coincidence of interest helps us understand the spontaneous coordination of economic affairs. No question, our voluntary exchanges entail many subtle proprieties, and our whole allegiance to commutative justice stems from deeper becoming virtues. Nonetheless, much of market conduct is simply commutative justice, about which the knowledge problems are really mostly quite minor. You pay at the counter. The disjointedness of knowledge, then, does not plague liberalism in the way that it plagues statist ideologies. Indeed, it bolsters liberalism. The centerpiece of liberalism is the presumption of liberty, and liberty is the flip side of commutative justice. In a liberal culture, people presume that people are innocent until proven guilty, and that the government is not to mess with people's stuff until it convincingly proves a significant net benefit in messing with people's stuff, or in doing things that, if done by a neighbor, would be patently coercive and criminal. In contravening the liberty principle, in favoring the governmentalization of affairs, then, the statist forsakes the rather accurate rules of commutative justice and the bottom-up local proprieties. He attempts to manipulate the whole from the top down. Thus, the statist forsaking the grammar and forsaking the local knowledge of local proprieties is doubly plagued by knowledge problems. It is only from great hubris that intellectuals and governments came to the status mentalities that now engulf us. The humility revealed by Marshall soon became quite unfashionable in economics. The fashion that followed was to flatten economics down to whatever was susceptible to formal modeling. In the 1960s and 70s, such figures as Kenneth Arrow, George Stigler, and Joseph Stiglitz flatten knowledge down to information. But you remember, there were three facets of knowledge. To omit interpretation and judgment from our sense of knowledge is to presuppose that interpretation is singular and fixed. It is to presuppose symmetric interpretation. And if interpretation is singular and fixed, then there is no matter of judging among interpretations. Judgment matters only if interpretations are multiple. In the past 40 years, there have been thousands of academic papers written about asymmetric information, and very few about asymmetric interpretation. Indeed, the economics literature almost never speaks of interpretation or judgment. Economists think they plumb the depths of knowledge when they speak of asymmetric information. The flattening of knowledge down to information, or what I call flat talk in economics, gives the false sense that the theorist has or can have some composite master interpretation that subsumes the interpretations of those within the system. 
When economists practice flat talk, they make it seem that more and better knowledge is merely an informational problem. They recognize the cost of search, but they presuppose knowledge of the boxes to search over. They fancy that the government is then in a position to manipulate incentives. Thus, flat talk flatters so-called experts as able to intervene beneficially. An interpretation is right only in the sense that it is better than the relevant alternative interpretation. It isn't right in the sense of final or definitive. But once the government starts acting on an interpretation, that interpretation tends to become ossified. Even if the government seizes on a pretty good interpretation of what is going on now, it is likely to cling to that interpretation long after it should have been superseded. Moreover, governmentalization of interpretation tends to regiment social affairs and repress the evolution of interpretation. Rather than fitting its interpretations to the world, government often tries to fit the world to its interpretations. The attitude seems to be that if our expert understanding of things isn't common knowledge, well, we'll see to it that it becomes common knowledge. I should add, however, that even government operatives often do not really believe in and act according to official interpretations. The crumminess of government interpretation gives rise to all manner of interpretational falsification, dissonance, and confusion. By nature, government is both Kafkaesque and Orwellian. It is knowledge problems that make government farcical. Officials and regulators know little about that which they are to regulate. For knowledge, they can only turn to people with some knowledge, often people who work in the regulated industries. When the government taps such parties, new absurdities flower. If the conversation is friendly and cooperative, commentators clamor against the influence of lobbyists and special interests. If the conversation is fearsome and demanding, some complain that business withheld information or misled officials. Either way, interested parties, some in a government chokehold, serve up descriptions of things, descriptions that are then received as official knowledge. Politicians, bureaucrats, experts, and journalists have little choice but to play along. Sometimes even analysts from Cato, no doubt, <clears throat> must play along. But the farce crescendos in our highest political superstitions. Flat talk also flatters the ordinary person as fit to know what policies to favor and whom to vote for. Thus, as I see it, flat talk tends to go with social democratic sensibilities as represented, for example, by Donald Whitman, who says democracy is efficient. Adam Smith, however, spoke of the ordinary fellow as, quote, being unfit to judge, even though he was fully informed. You might ask Smith, but if the fellow is fully informed, how can he be unfit to judge? Smith's answer is that, quote, his education and habits leave him unfit to judge. That is, his portfolio of interpretations and his judgment. The chief problem, then, is not a lack of information. It was by flattening knowledge down to information that Donald Whitman made the systematic failings of democracy disappear in his work. Flat talk, it seems to me, plays to deep-seated yearnings for a sense of common knowledge and common experience, a universal human weakness. <clears throat> Hayek wrote of a concurrence between the intellectual's pretense of knowledge and certain primordial, upper paleolithic instincts of humans generally. The concurrence between intellectual hubris and rude instinct makes a tacit alliance against the enlightened sensibilities of liberal civilization. The opponents of true liberalism might regard the teachings of Hayek and Smith as quaint verities. Intellectuals and regulators sometimes suggest that knowledge problems are being overcome by virtue of new technologies that enhance the government's ability to know. But new technology plays on both sides. New technologies also accelerate economic change and multiply the connections among activities. They make the whole economy that which is to be known. 
far more complex. After all, society includes the thoughts and potentialities of private actors, each of whom has likewise enjoyed enhanced capabilities by virtue of new technologies. The complexity of what is to be known outstrips the capabilities of the intellectual or regulator. New technologies should, should make intellectuals not more ready, but ever less ready to contravene the liberty principle. The Federal Register of 2011 filled some 82,000 triple column pages of dense text. It is something to which many passages from the wealth of nations speak. But I would like to conclude by returning to the theory of moral sentiments. The theory of moral sentiments teaches us that knowledge problems should disabuse us of the urge or the aspiration to make grammatical something ineluctably loose, vague, and indeterminate. To illustrate that foolish aspiration, Smith pointed to the books of casuistry that sought to guide confessors in the church. Smith says, see where I am here. Smith says that the casuists attempted to provide a grammar for all human conduct. It is the end of casuistry, he said, to prescribe rules for the conduct of a good man. By observing all the rules of casuistry, we should be entitled to considerable praise by the exact and scrupulous delicacy of our behavior. Smith roundly criticized such pretenses of the books of casuistry, calling them generally as useless as they are commonly tiresome. What he said about the casuists might be applied to those responsible for the content of the Federal Register. That frivolous accuracy which they attempted to introduce into subjects which do not admit of it almost necessarily betrayed them into those dangerous errors such as chicaning with our consciences and evading the most essential articles of our duty and at the same time rendered their works dry and disagreeable. In this respect, perhaps the feds and the statist intellectuals are the new casuists, and the modern state is the new hegemonic church. I've mentioned that David Hume and Adam Smith disliked enthusiasm, but do not forget their equal dislike of superstition. If enthusiasm distorts the mundane and grammatical in grasping after the sublime, superstition distorts the sublime in striving for a grammar. A sensitivity to the richness of knowledge made human Smith leery of both sorts of distortions. In liberal civilization, proprieties bubble up among equals in their spontaneous pursuits of happiness. People pursue the ornaments which embellish their lives within a grammar that even government respects, treating any exceptions to that grammar as exceptional. Thank you for your attention. Thanks, and now with uh, comments uh, is Jason Kiznicki, a research fellow here at Cato. Uh, Jason is the editor of Cato Unbound, a very fine uh, online magazine. Uh, and his interests include family policy, censorship, Austrian economics, and classical liberal political theory. Uh, he uh, earned a PhD in history from Johns Hopkins University in 2005, where his work was offered both a Fulbright Fellowship and a Chateaubriand Prize. Please welcome Jason. Thank you. First of all, uh, I'd like to thank Professor Daniel Klein for writing a very stimulating and engaging book. And uh, yes, it is actually a pretty difficult book, but I think it is also one that is full of ideas that I expect will uh, be uh, very productive in the future and will lead to a lot of interesting follow-up research. I'm, I'm going to start out with a passage that I especially liked from chapter 10, and it will be a little bit, a little bit of an overlap uh, because I believe that Professor Klein actually read roughly the same passage, but, but I want to highlight it and, and move on from there. This is the passage. An interpretation is right only in the sense that it is better than the relevant alternative interpretation. It isn't right in the sense of final or definitive. Once the government starts acting on an interpretation, it tends to become ossified. 
even if the government seizes on a pretty good interpretation of what's going on now, it is likely to cling to that interpretation long after it should have been superseded. This I take to be an answer to a very elementary and very important question. The question is, how is it that regular people can figure things out and get them right and government officials so commonly screw them up? And it's not that we have somehow, through some incredible coincidence, managed to elect nothing but idiots. This is an appealing idea, but it is not a correct one. The, the correct answer to this question, how is it that regular people get things right and government officials screw them up, is that regular people are trying to answer a different question. They're trying to do a different kind of epistemic task than government officials. And, and ordinary citizens, private citizens, have a much easier epistemic task than the government has. The government tries to encompass far too much. And private citizens have a much smaller area within which they get to work. And therefore, they tend to succeed. And some examples are very easy to name. Uh, much of the law that governs the internet, for example, substantially predates the internet itself. Some of the relevant laws, but by no means all of them, include the Electronic Communication Privacy Act of 1986, the Privacy Act of 1974, and the Federal Communications Act of 1934. Case law is not a whole lot better. It's it's a little bit better, but it's not a whole lot better. And as a whole, intellectual property law, privacy law, and tax law are all struggling to keep up with this new technology that has been tremendously disruptive and that has been created largely by private actors. As my colleague Julian Sanchez likes to say, the public square these days looks as if it takes place inside a giant copy machine. And, for example, IP law that doesn't take cognizance of this is going to be hopelessly out of date. Or if you want a much simpler example, consider the laws that govern food trucks in Washington, D.C. These trucks are governed by a 35-year-old law that was written when only ice cream vendors operated food trucks. They were written before the existence of social media that allow food trucks to connect with their customers. They were written before anyone had even invented the Korean taco. So uh, we, have, we have now a great demand for new legislation to try to answer this problem of how do we, how do we deal with food trucks. And I'm, I'm pleased to say, I guess, I guess pleased is the right word, to say that we finally have some draft rules that are being considered by the city council, and they took 19 months to develop. 19 months is enough time in the restaurant business for food fads to appear and flourish and die. Uh, but you know, we're getting around to it now, and maybe finally we will have these new regulations. Recently, we were treated to an op-ed in the Washington Post by Lynn Bro of the Restaurant Association of Metropolitan Washington, and she warned that, quote, no one benefits from a food truck free-for-all. I would submit that this is exactly the sort of knowledge flat talk that Professor Klein is warning us against. Uh, my question in response to this is, what do you mean no one? Uh, I, as a food consumer, might very well benefit from dozens of different food trucks selling Korean tacos and gourmet grilled cheese and lobster and uh, you know, Indian food and all the different things that uh, you can find on the streets today. And I think that's actually pretty, pretty great. You know, it's increased my choices tremendously. Uh, so does no one benefit? Well, if you take a particular view of the situation, yeah, okay, I guess you could say that. Or you might accuse her of... Of, I, I don't know, maybe a little bit of a vested interest given that she represents the restaurant uh, owners of the area. But, but this is a type of talk that is very appealing to planners. And I would also suggest that once we are done with food trucks, we are actually not really done with the problem of regulating the food service industry. And uh, I just read last week 
I believe it was, about a, a new development, the Taco Copter. Has anyone heard of the Taco Copter? A couple of hands. Okay. Taco Copter is a uh, drone aircraft with rotors. You call on your GPS-enabled cell phone to Taco Copter, which has a kitchen somewhere in your neighborhood. They put tacos on this remote-controlled, GPS-enabled aircraft, and it flies the tacos directly to you. Now, I don't know if this is a brilliant idea that will be the next big thing in food provision. I don't know if this is a clever, appealing idea that can't really be monetized. I don't know if this is a hoax. I, I kind of hope it's not a hoax. I've heard that it is. I hope it's not. I think a taco copter would be awesome. But the point is that the regulations that are being developed for food trucks clearly do not encompass the taco copter. Uh, and also, I think that the Federal Aviation Administration also has a, a few additional regulations that might have to come into play. The point of this, the point of this is that entrepreneurs are free to work in very small areas, like the provision of tacos by drone aircraft, uh, that clearly regulators are not going to think of when they set up their regulations. And for an entrepreneur to be successful, he just has to get that one thing right. He doesn't have to get anything else right. He just has to get this one thing right. He has to show he can provide tacos in a way that is more convenient than even the food trucks that operate via social media. That's all he has to do. And if he does that, he succeeds. The regulator, on the other hand, has to regulate for traditional restaurants, for ice cream vendors, for uh, street uh, sidewalk-based vendors that aren't motorized. He has to regulate for food trucks, may have to regulate for taco copters, may have to regulate for uh, I don't even know what's going to be the next thing after that. Who knows? Regulators are playing a very different game and a much harder one. Both are making claims about knowledge, but they are different in their epistemic scope. And that's why it appears that entrepreneurs are so smart and government regulators are not. They're asked to do different things. Professor Klein suggests also in chapter 10 and throughout his book that the economics profession has been somewhat complicit in helping the regulators. Why is this? Well, there might be, I dare say, structural reasons for it. If you're an economist, you have a certain interest in, well, getting tenure, in convincing people of your own expertise, your own knowledge. And you don't really get very far in doing that if you go around saying, well, I don't know how to provide food. I don't know how this regulation is going to work in practice. The way that you get preferment, the way that you get tenure, the way that you get respect in the profession is by flattering the pretext of knowledge by flattering the regulators who say, yes, we can encompass all these things, and we can make regulations that will last from 1934 to the present. And yes, the regulations that we are adopting now are going to be enough to govern whatever people can come up with. Well, that's actually constantly being proven wrong. Uh, I think this is, this is actually a very exciting and very interesting way to look at the problem of why government seems to fail and why the private sector seems to succeed. And I'd like to suggest one connection that was made for me that uh, I think will be very productive in the future of future, uh, you know, for future research. And that is that what we are seeing here in this epistemic conflict between regulators and entrepreneurs actually looks a lot like Karl Popper's theory of science and how scientific progress is made. And I, I expect to draw blanks here, and I don't expect it to be uh, uh, something that's necessarily at the front of an economist's mind when he writes a textbook about, or a you know, research you know, project about economy. But, uh, but, but hear me out on this. 
if you are a Popperian about science, the way that science progresses is not by coming up with a comprehensive theory of everything that will explain how uh, light and gravity and uh, electromagnetism and all these things work forever and for good. Popperian science works through falsification. A scientific claim to Popper is one that can theoretically be proven wrong. We can imagine a way in which it could be proven wrong. And what scientists do is they make these claims, and then they work on proving them wrong. And when you prove a theory wrong, you have learned something new. And then you move on and try to create a new theory. This, I would suggest, is a lot like what entrepreneurs do. The uh, entrepreneur who says, I can make a successful food provision business with a combination of social media and a truck and quality food and a customer base that will seek me out through the social media and truck that will vary its location so that it can serve the entire customer base all across the city. This is, in a sense, falsifying the idea that a fixed location restaurant is the only real way to provide food. It's not providing a universal theory of food provision. Now, maybe the taco copter will come along and beat it. Who knows? But it is falsifying the previous theory. And like Popperian science, this, you know, this falsification of the previous theory does not, have to, does not have to provide the entire theory of everything to be relatively more successful. Regulation, on the other hand, does have to do that, or at least sets itself up, puts itself in a position such that it does that. And that's the problem with it. That's, that's the problem with regulation. Now, maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, free associating a little bit too much. And, and to, to be honest, it is, uh, this, this book is a, a book that lends itself to the sorts of, of, of associational thinking. Uh, but uh, I wanted to use my time here to ask Professor Klein whether he thought that there might be something to, to what I'm suggesting here, that uh, entrepreneurs do the work of falsification. They do the work of trying to find ways in which the previous way of doing business wasn't quite the best. Maybe it was only provisionally good, and maybe it can be improved incrementally in the future. And if that's the case, then we have this very uh, appealing to me, aesthetically appealing parallel on the one hand between science and entrepreneurship and a great classical liberal popper in his own right and the post-Smithian, post-Austrian account of economics that we find offered in this book. And I think I'll just close there and you can try to answer my question maybe or, or respond. From the seat. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Well done. Yeah, Professor Klein, if you'd like to take a few minutes to address Jason's comments, and then I think we can open it up for questions after that. Splendid, thanks. Um, well, I'll pick up on your Popper connection. I think that's a, an interesting idea. Um, I certainly see the parallel you're drawing. Um, to continue the parallel, um, I guess we have to, if we're going to see entrepreneurs as analogous to um, scientists, Scientists who, I guess, both falsify conjectures that are out there as well as formulate new conjectures. I guess, I mean, it's a fun idea, and I guess the broader idea would be that a, a free market leads to better science um, in terms of uh, whatever, however it is you interpret the entrepreneur's doings as, as science, uh, then, then uh, intervention and so on. Um, if we're going to interpret entrepreneurs' actions as, as sort of scientific statements, statements about the world, um, what are those statements about? About how much people like tacos, about what the uh, cost possibilities are in producing tacos somewhere. Um, I'm not averse to this idea, but um, you're talking about um, very situational, historic, specific matters that these scientific claims are then about. And that kind of um, isn't really what we usually think of as science. 
Um, we think about science being about matters that are more universal and, and, and so on. So uh, I think there's that limitation to what you're saying, although it certainly is interesting. Another way to look at what you say about Popper is um, to, to be more literal and talk about um, not entrepreneurs as such, but scientists as entrepreneurs and about the need for science to be free. Um, and uh, we have um, Lon Fuller and Michael Polanyi and such figures writing about the spontaneous order of science, which, which would be very, might, might be fruitful connection for your entrepreneur analogy. Um, uh, just another small remark before we open it. Um, I found it very interesting, uh, all your remarks, but uh, I noted down uh, your remarks about the complicity of economists in flattening down knowledge. Um, that's an interesting idea, um, and certainly a good number of economists are centrist or, you know, even lean to the left. In fact, among academic economists, the ratio of Democratic to Republican voters is about two and a half to one. So it's preponderantly Democrats in the economics profession. Economics profession often has a reputation of being so free market. Um, but the truth is it's only free market relative to the rest of the academy. Um, and, and so I do agree that um, I think a lot of the knowledge flatteners do share that sort of governing set interventionist mentality and so on. But I would like to add that in fact the knowledge flattening is by no means confined to the statists or the centrists or however we want to describe the non-free market people. Um, George Stigler is perhaps the most famous knowledge flattener. Uh, he's kind of the anti-Smith in everything except for the fact that he also favored free markets. He's kind of the anti-Smith, George Stigler. Um, and, and many, many economists in that vein are gung-ho knowledge flatteners and don't particularly see uh, the trouble it gets them into in opposing interventions they don't like, I would say. Okay, I guess that's it. We'll open it up.